I'm holding on to that, that the work that I'm doing, and it's not an ego thing, it's just a love thing. That love will work if we just, it's such a simple, simple thing. You have to say that word love. You have to mean it from your heart and the plants will respond, the animals will respond, everything. Everything responds to that. And I think that whatever I'm doing, it might be small, but it's still counting. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of sacred journeys, spirit encounters, near-death experiences, angels, mysteries, marvels and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary people reveal their extraordinary encounters. I acknowledge the Darawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land of Sutherland Shire in Australia, where I live and record Spirit Sisters, and I recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and community. I pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to introduce you to a new friend of mine. And this lady has such an interesting and fascinating life story that as soon as we began to connect, I had the thought that I would love to interview her and have a conversation and introduce you all to Linda Dean. Linda, welcome to Spirit Sisters. Thank you, Karina. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so lovely to have you on the show. And we connected In a funny old way, I think the first thing that happened was you might have commented on one of my Facebook posts about walking the Camino. I think that's how it went. Yes, that's correct. Because you have walked a portion of the Camino. I did. I walked from uh, Lyon. I landed in Santander and then bussed down to Lyon and walked from there uh, and walked to Finisterre and Muxia after uh, Compostela to Santiago. So... um, about 50 kilometres all in all. Okay, beautiful. And the next time I do the Camino Frances, I would love to uh, to walk to Finisterre and see the sea. Yeah. It's beautiful. It really is. It's a, it's a nice ending to that whole journey. Oh, I love that. Yep. Looking forward to that moment. So, uh, Linda, in our correspondence, which was initially over the, the comments on my um, Facebook post, you at one point very kindly shared the link to your Instagram page where you uh, showcase your beautiful artworks. I just fell in love with your art. As soon as I clicked on the link, I had a look and it's, it's incredibly unique what you create and there is an amazing story behind. Now, you are a lady who is full of beautiful stories, but let's start with this one. There's an amazing story behind how you actually began to bring, bring forth these really exquisite artworks, which are each, each one is painted on an old LP record, a vinyl. So let's begin. I know that the story that precedes this awakening of, of artistic abilities in you takes place at Uluru in December 2020 when you were called to go to Uluru. Could you tell mm. us about that? What happened at that time? 
Yes, it was quite strange, really, because I had no preconceived notions of going to Uluru. But um, in the November, I think it must have been, all of a sudden I just felt this calling to go. And I put out to all my girlfriends and said, who wants to come with me? Um, you know, we can go for the solstice, which was, you know, I felt was really important. They were saying that the Aboriginal people had um, a big ceremony going to take place to uh, work with the heart chakra of Uluru, and it was very significant. I don't really know too much about all of that. But anyway, there was this calling to go. So none of my friends wanted to go. It was so bizarre. Um, and so I, I sort of resigned myself to the fact that uh, it may not happen. And the fares were very expensive. They were about 800 when I was initially looking at them. And then all of a sudden, the fares went down to $170, which made it very, very affordable for me. And uh, I took that as a sign. And at the same time, my sister also offered to or said that she would like to go to Uluru with me. So that then had the accommodation expenses, which were very, very dear. So that made everything possible. So uh, we headed off. But, oh, but just before I say that, uh, the lead up to going to Uluru, uh, my sister-in-law saw four snakes on different occasions. So my interpretation of that was that we were perhaps going to Uluru so that something would happen to her spiritually because to see four snakes on different occasions is quite rare. Mm. And she lives on the Gold Coast, so it's you know it's a busy place. But, yeah, every time she was out walking or running, she encountered a snake. So, yes, my, my thought process was that we were going for a reason and it was to do with her. So we got cheap fares, we managed to get into the hotel and we went off to um, Uluru, we went camel riding, we did all the touristy things. Uh, we stayed in a little box room, which still cost us $2,000 for the week. But, oh my goodness. you know, it was all good. We went out there. Um, we walked around the base of Uluru and, um, and it was a really beautiful experience. But um, the big thing that happened for me was on the day of the solstice, everybody was preparing to uh, have celebrations for that night. There was a big conference. I think there were over 300 people there uh, to witness solstice at Uluru. And if you've ever been to Uluru, you know that there are some sort of man-made constructed hills where you can go up and view Uluru. That just didn't feel right to me. So during the day, and it was about 10.30 in the morning, pretty hot, I decided that I would go out to pay my respects, I guess, to the rock. And I went out by myself, bare feet. And as I walked towards the hill to go up, I realised that I wasn't supposed to do that and I needed to be level with the rock. So I sort of scouted around for a little place. During the course of doing that, I picked up a branch and I started to brush the sand of footprints. And as I was doing it, I'm thinking to myself, what the hell are you doing? This, this is bizarre, you know, but I was still doing it. And it was okay to leave the bare footprints, but I was sweeping away the shoe prints. Anywhere there were shoe prints, I was sweeping it with the leaves. Anyway, I sat down and um, and sort of settled myself in, was very quiet and just began gazing at the rock. And what I saw was 
white light emanating from the top of the rock and from the base there was like a purple or indigo light all around the base it was amazing I, I don't know how to even explain it it was just something so different and I just sat with that for a little while out there nothing else happened at that particular time it was just me sitting nobody else was around because it was just so hot and uh, and when I came back I actually painted that onto a record and I have that sitting right above me now in, in my bedroom mm. um but that night was solstice and I was in bed probably by 7.30. I didn't join all the celebrations or anything. Neither did my sister-in-law. We sort of went to bed. We had dinner and went to bed fairly early. Um, and I believe, and I can't swear to it, but I believe that night was the night that I had my dream, which was like a lucid dream. Um, I was in the presence of a redback spider and she was over the top of me. And if you know redback spiders, they are very black and they have very angular legs. And that's what I could sort of feel, that she was towering above me and over me and she was weaving. And as all this was happening, I was saying to myself, well, that's ridiculous. They don't have redback spiders out in the desert you know, and trying to sort of make sense of it within the dream. So I believe it was a lucid dream. And then I thought, well, she's going to put her pinches into my neck and inject the poison and the poison will go through my body and it will turn my body uh, into like a, a mush or a fluid that she can feed on and she will feed on my body. And I was saying it to myself, quite matter of fact, that you know there was no fear in it at all it was just all very yeah very matter of fact and as she was weaving all of a sudden I realized that that wasn't actually the case what was actually happening was that I was within her nest and she was weaving a nest around me and I was being born so it was mm. like a huge rebirth or a a birthing and I know now that um, spider means creativity and I believe that's what she endowed me with um, and you know I, I tell my sister-in-law the next morning what had happened and she raises her eyebrows she's not into all this stuff <laughs> at all but later on that that next day we went down to the hotel and they had um like a jewellery section, an artist section. There was lots of paintings and jewellery and stuff like that. In one of the jewellery cases, there was a tiny rock with a red-backed spider on it that was weaving a web. Oh and that God. was my verification. That was just, yes, you are doing, you know, you, you're on the right path. You have remembered correctly. So that was That's... amazing for me. That was just an incredible, incredible experience. Oh, and from that came the records. So when I came back, I just couldn't stop drawing. And to, to do a little lead up to that, I would had actually um, done a mandala class, uh, I think in the beginning of November, with a lady here on the Sunshine Coast. And me being me, I'm quite lazy. And so I was thinking, mm, how am I going to do a mandala? I don't want to draw all those lines. I, I'd quite like having imperfection in the in the perfection 
And so I thought, what has lines around it that I can cheat with? And I thought, a record has lines. So I went to the op shop and I bought myself a vinyl record. And I did, in, in a, with a gold pen, I drew an, a Mandela before I even went to the art class took it along and showed the lady and because I'd already done it I then painted something else thought nothing more about it really I really liked what I'd done um, but I knew where all the little mistakes were but that didn't matter it looked good as an overall picture it looked good but when I came back um, from Uluru the records were the first thing that I picked up and I realized that there was I'm going to say magic. There's power and magic within the vinyl record because the ones that I was buying at the op shops were the things, were the records that were going into landfill. They were Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and the things that nobody buys anymore. And so there, that is very, very powerful music. Mm. I do have a lot of Kamal records, I must say. Um, <laughs> poor Kamal. And also Richard Clayderman. <laughs> <laughs> they are very big in the op shops. Um, I have yes. noticed that myself. I do like yeah. to flip through the, the LPs yeah. at the op shop too. Wow. But I realised that there was power in them. And so, um, yeah, so really, cut a long story short, I started to draw. And then I believe that I was used as a channel and the art just keeps on changing. It, it was very, very simplistic and quite... Uh, indigenous in the beginning, it, lots and lots of dot work, which mm. felt beautiful to me. And I used it as a type of medicine. So I would draw, now it's all mainly at night, but um, I was using it to, to just slow down and just be mindful. But it has become a medicine for me and the, and the art has changed and the messages change. And I've had people come up to... Uh, look at a record in my house because I have a whole wall that is just covered in records and they change all the time as people buy them um, but people have physical reactions they will step up to a record and touch it and actually have a physical reaction where they step back it's quite amazing and so each record has a name and there's a little story attached to it and yes it's a beautiful story. There's there's so much within that. I just I love how you shared around the significance of the LP because as you say it's not just it's not just this flat disc. It is is it is infused. It's a piece of art. It's infused with the creativity of the composer or the musician and yeah. it's it's significant and I really love, you know, on a practical level that you're saving all of these records from landfill and repurposing them. So on that kind of very 3D level, it's a beautiful service. The, the record is also a spinning disc, so it is the, the <laughs> vortex. Oh, goodness me. There's so much to this. And spirit comes through because spirit is being channeled through me and my heart is in it because it's me. They're using me to draw so, you know, a component of me is in it, not, not the artistic part. That's all them, I'm sure and the message, but it's part of me is in it. So I, I like to think that my heart is in it because I'm just the instrument that mm. it is um, pushing it through. So, yeah, it's very exciting and I'm in awe of it myself. I lay on my couch and I look at my wall and I think, holy cow, how did I do that? It's just amazing. It amazes me. Prior to I that, had you, had you created art before? Had you painted or drawn before? 
not in a true sense, but I did do a house sit in uh, Dramana in Victoria a few years ago, and I did a house sit for an artist. And while I was doing that, she had a studio out the back, and she said to me, if you want to go out into the studio, I've left some canvases out there. You just go and play. And the actual house I didn't like the feel of. So every morning, as soon as I got up, I would go out to the studio and just play. And then I would go and sit on the grass in the garden and do dot work and stuff like that. And because I don't think I can draw, I would turn things around upside down because I thought that was a good way to draw without expectation. And I did mm. paintings while I was there not anything grand I've given most of them away because I don't you know I just thought that that was a nice thing to do but I'll tell you a little story with that one day I was opening my boot in my car and I was with a girlfriend of mine and there was a picture of a like an an elf-like girl in there that I'd painted and I didn't like it I wasn't sure what it was all about very it was gray and it was quite different and as soon as I opened the boot she said oh, my God, I dreamt about her last night, or words to that effect. I don't remember exactly what it was. So I gifted that straight to her. So it was already coming into play even Mm. then. I'm sensing that as you're talking. I can see that you've been, for want of a better turn of phrase, set up in a way. Yeah. You know, everything's falling into place. So you've got that house sit, which was a few years ago, and then just prior to going to Uluru, the Mandala course. Yeah, so it was all being brought to you. But kudos to you for being open and accepting the invitation because the artist said to you when you were house-sitting, oh, go go and use the room and have a play, and you did, you know. Some of us might not have. You did. Well, it was safe mm. because I was by myself. I had no expectation and there was no one else there that I needed to impress or, you know, all the the human things that you think that you need to do well at. Yeah, all the human things. It didn't matter. So I could play. Yeah. I love that. And so I remember, though, just before we move away from the Uluru story, which was the opening to everything, just almost exactly three years ago now, um, there was a message that you received when you were at Uluru and it had to do with the veil lifting. Now, yeah, I wonder if you can share that story and was was that during, was that in the moment where you saw the violet light or at what point did you have this realisation that this message was coming through? I was just walking with my sister-in-law between hotels. That was all it was. And I just said to her, I believe that the, an, a veil has lifted and the animals are going to come forward. And while I was speaking, a little moth came and landed on my finger. And, um, and I say these things without even understanding what they mean. You, you know, I... So often in my life, all these spiritual things that have happened, it's like I'm an observer because I'm thinking, oh, for heaven's sake, don't say that loud. (laughs) It's just a bit too out there. And and my sister-in-law was not that way inclined at all. And she just looks at me, you know, but the the little moth or butterfly, whatever it was, and I've got a photo of it, um, just landed on my finger. And I just knew that that was true. I knew that there was... Something that had happened that would allow us to receive messages from the animal kingdom. And then, um, I don't know when, but uh, during the course of the time between Uluru and now, 
one day I'd fallen asleep on my couch and as I woke, I realised that another veil had lifted and the elementals were coming through. Now, that was really exciting to me because because I'd seen the animal thing, I was waiting to see fairies in my garden. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I haven't seen them, but I'm very, very aware that the light in my garden is beautiful. And, and also when I, I do the singing to the water and I flick the water, and as I flick the water up and the, the water droplets go up into the air, the colours that are in those droplets of water are just magnificent. So there's something tied in there as well. It's being able to see somehow differently. Mm, I really like that. And, yes, you referenced there the singing, how you sing to the water, and that's something that you're teaching me to do and I've been doing mm -hmm. it the last couple of days. And we'll come back to that because I yep. think that I really um, – that's something that I'd love – to pass on, you know, and have more more of us doing that. And we'll explain why later. But just before, again, just before we move on, the message that you received when you were at Uluru about the veil lifting and the animals coming through, was that before your dream? I don't know. I think it was after. Mm. The feeling is that it might have been, because I, I know exactly where we were. We were just walking between hotels. So whether it had just been after I'd seen the rock, which verified the spider, but it was in, in that little walkway that we used to do between the hotels. So I think it was definitely after the dream. Okay. Um, because for me, even to say it out loud, was I'm going to say brave. Yeah, I just didn't say things like that to my sister-in-law generally. That there must have been um there's an awakening so I, I would have been excited that I was getting those messages and I would have voiced it to her mm, it's like you couldn't stop yourself it bubbled yeah. out out of joy yeah. yeah that's wonderful and like I'm just thinking about you being somebody who as you said like there were things that you wouldn't say and only I've only started to get to know you Linda and I know that you have had all of these really quite marvellous spiritual experiences your whole life. So I'm just thinking there would have been a lot perhaps over the years that you didn't share. And I feel very honoured that you're here sharing with us today in an open way and, and it's a beautiful yeah. gift to us all. Thank you. So there's one, and we'll go into, into a lot of your stories, but I thought if it's okay with you, let's start with an amazing experience that you had on a very sad day. It was the day your husband passed away 23 years ago. And I was wondering if you could share with us that story. I can. And for any of my girlfriends that are listening to this later on, they know the story back to France. So, you know, they have also been my uh, sounding board. You know, I'm, I've been very blessed to have some beautiful friends around me that I've been able to unpack this stuff with. But yes, yeah, so on the day that my husband died, I went to the op shop down in Maruchador. We had a little farm in a little town called Mumbai. And so I travelled down to Maruchador because I was looking for some particular books and uh, I'm an op shopper. Tried and true. That's, that's my um, love to just go me too. But I had, yeah, I had Jake with me, who was only four at the time. So um, off we trotted, and we went down to this particular op shop in Aerodrome Road in Marichal, which isn't going to mean anything to anybody else. But anyway, they had a, their book section was actually 
upstairs and went upstairs with Jake and sat him down in front of the bookcase and I was looking through books and there was a lady standing next to me. I was being told by spirit at the same time to listen to what she had to say. I was busy. I wasn't listening to spirit. I was looking for my books. I have since learned to listen to spirit a little bit closer. But she was standing beside me. I know, and I don't know how I know this, but she was 56 years old. She had grey hair pulled back in a like a ponytail of some description. She had a walking cane. And she was trying to engage me in conversation. And I wasn't being rude. I was answering her, but I wasn't engaged with her. I wasn't looking at her. I would say yes or no, whatever. She dropped her walking stick at one stage and I remember picking it up and handing it back to her at the same time as being told by spirit to listen again. And again, I ignored it. And uh, perusing all the books and Jake was just sitting down on the floor with a little book, you know, and, and I found the books that I wanted to get and bundled that up, picked Jake up, went down the stairs and went to pay for my books. And as I opened my wallet, I found my business card inside. And I said to Jake, sit there and don't move. And he was inches from the staircase. I mean, it wasn't dangerous or anything like that. But I ran up the staircase. And as I was running up the staircase, I was thinking to myself, please don't say this aloud. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But I went to the woman and I handed her my card and I said, if you are ever in Mumbai, come and have a cuppa. And my whole, the whole time my head is saying, what the hell are you doing? And I turned around and ran straight back downstairs and she leant over the banister and she said, you won't be sorry you did that enough, which was such a strange thing for someone to say. Mm, can you repeat that, what she said to you just then? You won't be sorry that you did that love. So cut a long story short, went home, unpacked the books, and then I rang my girlfriend uh, Kim in Melbourne who was far more advanced in the spiritual sectors than me, and I said, I don't know what this is, Kim, but I've just met an angel, and she she was a spiritual one, and she was saying, oh, she's probably just a really nice lady. And I said, no, I don't know how I know this, but I know she was an angel. And we had this conversation and then that finished and I did all my things that I had to do. My husband came home from work and then went on off to squash and he came home uh, after the game of squash. I think he'd had a heart attack on the squash court but not a major one. Uh, friends had bundled him into the car and were taking him to the hospital but he said he just wanted to come home so they took him to his car and he drove home. But he came in and um, I was actually on the phone to my girlfriend, Kim, again, talking about something else, I don't know what, and he said something had happened uh, at the squash courts. So um, we, I'm getting all teary. <laughs> um, to cut a long story short, he stood up from the couch and he fell backwards and had a massive heart attack. Oh, I'm so sorry and, to hear this. Yeah, and died on the floor in front of the kids. And, yeah, and so mm. I just believe that that lady was the angel that came to help him cross over. That is my version of 
what happened that day. Okay, so in retrospect, you feel that she she was there at the bookshop almost as, would you say, like offering some solace or for you something for you to later reflect on as as a helping influence? Perhaps I don't know. I haven't really thought about that aspect of it. I know that I know that he was helped by someone who was a woman. Okay. The only thing I can put together is that I had said she was an angel, and then therefore she is the one that is helped. Like I've seen him in dreams since, and he's always got a woman on the other side of him taking him away. That's mm. amazing. Yeah, but I mean, yes, I wonder what would have happened had I listened to what she had to say. I'd never thought of that before. That's the first time that's come into play. Mm. So, yeah, I wonder what her message would have been to me. Yes, and and her last words to you were, you won't regret this, love. You won't be sorry you did that, love. Yeah, you won't be sorry you did that, love. Yeah, which is such an odd thing to say. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, because she leant over the banister as well as I was running down the stairs, you know, and and she leant, I can see it as I'm explaining it to you. She leant over and said those words and, you know, and you think to yourself, God, that's odd. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, and gathered Jake up and went out to the car and they thought nothing more of it until I got home and was yeah. talking to my girlfriend. But, yeah, he passed that night and I absolutely 100% believe that that woman was there to help him cross over. Because he was young. He was only 44 years old. Mm. So That's um, so young. Thank you so much is. for sharing that story with us, Linda. And speaking of angels, I know that five years before this encounter with this lady in the bookshop, you had maybe your first or maybe not your first, but a, an earlier experience with an angel. Can you share that? Mm. Yes, I did. Uh, I was staying with some friends in Maroochydore. We, we were up on holiday and we were staying with um, friends of ours in the heart of Maroochydore and we were in a bedroom up on the second floor and the room had a window that was up really, really high, not practical to see out of. You could sort of, on tiptoes, you might just be level with the sill, the window sill, you know. It was a very, what do they call, vaulted ceiling or something in that room. To let in light, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I don't even know what I was doing, but I was the only one in the room and I turned around and in the window, sitting in the window, was a fully-fledged angel with the wings and the whole whole ball and dice, you know. It was just just sitting on the window frame and, um, and I just looked and saw it and thought, oh, my God, what do I do with this? And walked out of the room and never really did anything, you know, I knew it had happened, but I couldn't comprehend it. It was too big for my brain. And so I didn't really do anything with that information. But again, I wonder what would have happened with that had I stopped and, I don't know, communicated somehow. Mm. But, uh, and she yeah. looked, I remember asking you this when we first chatted, she looked as real as, as a human being sitting there, didn't she? Oh, absolutely. She? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I and I've thought about whether it's a female or a male. I think maybe that's an androgynous thing with angels that they may be either either. Yeah. But my feeling is it was feminine. But what do you do when you meet an angel? <laughs> what do you do? You walk downstairs and you pretend it never happened. 
<laughs> and I, I think also an interesting uh, message that is emerging even in this early stage of our conversation as we're beginning to listen to some of your stories is the importance of listening to your intuition. And mm-hmm. even though, you know, you didn't um, talk to the lady in the bookshop, for instance, well, not engage, as you say, fully yeah. with the lady in the bookshop, you still heeded your intuition when you ran back, left your little boy there, told him to sit tight and quickly just ran back and gave her the business card, you know. You know, I was being directed to do it and, and arguing internally with it. And that's happened to me a few times because sometimes I do things that are so out of character but I don't have a choice in it. I just have to – I think I told you the story of the lady in the, in the shop where I – was doing a foot detox and I had to ask her where she was when Jesus died, which, you know, oh my God, what am I doing? So just set that one up a little bit because I was going to ask you about that because even this whole story about how you came to work in this uh, well-being shop was something that was very different for you considering the line of work that you had been in um, prior. So maybe just share that one and and, uh, where that falls in the chronology. Oh, where does it fall in the chronology? How long ago was? Oh God, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Um, I was a marriage celebrant, and I was working at Australia Post. And this particular day, I was sitting in my little office, which is under the stairs in my house, and I was working on a wedding that I was doing. You know, doing all the wording and everything. And my mum and dad were visiting, so mum was in the kitchen, and uh, I was just sitting there typing some stuff. And all of a sudden, I had this like cartoon bubble up above me to the right of me that had the words, the name of this shop. And um, and I had a voice come through as well that said I needed to go to this particular shop. And I remember stopping what I was doing and going into the kitchen and my mum was in there doing something. And I said, I think I've got to go to Coastal Wellbeing and ask for a job. And, and I, you know, as I'm saying it, you know, I can feel the doubt in that, that voicing of it because I didn't even need another job. You know, I was happy doing what I was doing. But anyway, because it had come through from spirit and, and I have learned to listen better and better, um, the next day I went to that particular shop and it was uh, a wellness centre selling crystals and books and all sorts of things. And... I used to go in there every now and again, but I fluffed around in the shop because I didn't know what I was going to say to them. Uh, and eventually I, I was brave enough to go up to the counter and I said to one of the sons that was sitting there, do you have any jobs going at the moment? And he looked up at me because he was sitting quite low down. I don't know why that is, but I can still see him looking up at me. And he said, what sort of job? And that threw me because I hadn't even thought about that. And I'd never worked in retail before. So I said, oh, maybe behind the counter. And he said, hmm, we put out to the universe three, three or two days ago that we needed someone. Welcome, Linda. And that was as simple as it was. Wow. And he had to run that past his other brother uh, to make sure that he was okay with it. But they made me the manager of their shop in another um, suburb. And like I said, I'd never even worked in retail, but they gave me complete basically complete autonomy in that shop and it was a meeting place for women and it was just 
it became a very um, pivotal place for me to um, strengthen my spiritual journey. It just fell into place just like that. And I think if we learn to trust, the flow is incredible. That's so, such a good get, point. Yeah, You've got to get into that flow. And, I mean, I, I resist the flow because it makes you stand out from the crowd mm-hmm. and I don't really like doing that, but I'm learning to do that. And, Linda, you were working there at the wellbeing shop when you yep. had this experience that you referenced before. Oh, where, yeah. yeah, so you were doing, I think, are they called a foot detox on a, on a yeah. customer? Yeah, so the shop that I was managing for them had the crystals and the cards. and We had practitioners in there doing Reiki massage. We had a naturopath and stuff like that. So one of the things that I would do at the back of the shop was I would offer foot detoxes to people. So this particular day, a woman came in and I remember her name was Prue and she was an elderly lady. And... um, as we were walking up the back, you know, I was thinking I don't want to say this to her, but I was not being given very much uh, choice. But I set her up. She sat down. I had to go and get warm water and, and put the um, electrodes into the water for her detox to start. And it's a, a very Christ-like experience because you're bathing somebody's feet. You know, you've, you've got that whole jesus thing going on at the mm. same time I, I, that's a feeling that i've sort of come to and anyway um as i was putting her feet in or doing something i just said to her where were you when jesus died and she answered me straight away and she said i was there i was simon's wife and it was like i'd asked her what she was having for dinner that night it was so matter of fact it just blew me away and and that happened a couple of times where I was I'm not going to say forced to say something but I argue with myself because I don't want to say the words that are formulating in my brain but it just happens and after you said that to that lady then and she answered did she then expand on on this being Simon's Mm -hmm. wife and from as Simon I'm thinking that could be Simon of Serene who was the fellow who helped Jesus carry the cross a little bit of the way to to the the mount there. But did she expand on that at all? No, no. It it was like I said, you know, it was like I just (laughs) asked her what she was having for dinner, chicken or pork or whatever. And then that was it. Yeah, basically. And, I mean, you're saying that I just thought, okay, Simon's a disciple. That's all I thought. Yeah, never had any more. Um, I don't think she ever came back into the shop. I'm not sure, but so many things happened in that shop. It was, it was an amazing experience. Mm. Really. And is there a sense of relief when? So you're having this internal struggle. Oh, do I say this? Do I not? Do I say it? And then when you say it, do you feel like okay, job done? I did it. No, I can't say that. That's something that's conscious in my mind at all. Um, How does it feel when you when you do say, give that message? I've never thought about that. I just there's the embarrassment because I'm sort of arguing with myself about doing it. I suppose there would be a sense of um, relief that it's out, but I, I've not thought about that side of things mm. to be. So I just yeah, I just it's like I have verbal diarrhea. You know, it just comes out. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God. 
but I did it again uh, another time with a young girl that was in looking at some books in the store and I asked her and she burst into tears straight away. She left the shop. I don't know what that was about. I felt very bad about that. Do you remember but what again, you asked her? I asked her where she was when Jesus died. Oh, the same question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I find, like, I've discussed this with a lot of girlfriends, you know, and, and I've got one particular girlfriend who believes that she was the soldier at the base of the cross that perhaps stabbed Jesus in the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's quite a few people that I associate with that have some connection with that day. And, and maybe we're just, you know, it, it doesn't make sense that, with so many people in the world, just a little handful of us could be it, but we could be an aspect of the personality of the person that we believe, you know, all that stuff happened to. I'm trying to wrap my head around how all that can happen. But, yeah, it's very, very big. It's very big. And you yourself have a memory of that time in history, don't you, of a life there? Well, someone asked me where I was when Jesus died. And I wasn't looking up at him, whereas so many people were at the base of the cross and looking up or whatever. I feel, and this is very out there, I feel I was looking across at him and I believe I was the thief on the cross next to him. And and for me, that was verified one day when I was in the city of Melbourne. I was uh, walking along, taking photos, looking up because people don't take photographs of what's going on up in the sky. And there's some amazing sights in the city of Melbourne. And I was walking up the hill in Collins Street um, towards Russell Street and just clicking away. And when I looked at a particular photo that I'd taken as I walked up the hill, and it was opposite the old TNG building, there's a little church there. And I've never noticed this before at all, but the photo depicts Christ and the thief on the cross. And for me, I took that as verification because there was no no um, preconceived notion of taking a photo or anything. I was completely oblivious. I was just taking pictures and then uh, looked at it and, and there it was. And so for me, that was a validation of sorts. Mm. And at what stage in your spiritual journey do you feel that you first had this realisation or or hint that you may have lived at that time and been that person? When did that come to? I would say that that's probably in the last 20 years. I don't think that that was something I ever thought of before my husband passed away, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I think that that's a realisation that has come in later years. But, yeah, certainly, I mean, I have a thousand stories. <laughs> I know. And let's let's actually – so we'll come back to past lives because there is an amazing story about another time in history that you have a deep connection to. But before that, I think let's take you back in time a bit and go back, wind back the clock to your childhood because I know that you first began having experiences – of this sort when you were 14. Is that correct, Linda? That's that's the first thing that I remember. We had come to Australia from the UK and maybe there are memories that will come back to me that are earlier, but this is the, the first thing that I can think of is we lived in a little place in Victoria called Rosebud on the Mornington Peninsula and my mum and dad had bought 
like a little row of holiday flats and there was a house at the back and the whole driveway was lined with proteas and I would see a lady not see physically but in my mind's eye I guess during the night so I, I, it's either a dream state or a remembering of a dream or something but a lady in blue would step out of the side bushes and walk up the driveway and that's really all I remember but as far as I can tell that is my first spiritual thing because I feel like she is a Mary mm. I don't know whether she's Mary Magdalene oh but a, another thing that happened in that time frame too was that I would um, talk to people and I, and I wasn't religious or anything like that but I would argue with people about Mary Magdalene and I would say she's not she's not the woman that people say she is she wasn't a bad woman and I have no way of knowing why I thought that that's quite you extraordinary it, so you were saying that as a teen around yeah. that, wow yeah, that's really interesting yeah. yeah it's very interesting because the um I guess the quote-unquote redemption of Mary Magdalene is actually quite a recent thing where we've mm. become to you know become more aware of the true role that she played as the first uh, and the the most learned perhaps of the apostles mm. and um and we can go as far as we we would like with that there is so so much information around her now and you know beliefs that she took the teachings to France and whatnot mm. And the Catholic Church, I can't remember in what year, I think it was Pope Francis who made her, deemed her apostle of the apostles. So so that's all been happening. But for you to say that mm. back then, yeah, when really nobody knew. No, and I mean, I didn't know either. I, I was just defending her. It just felt right. And I and I feel now that I I would like to believe that she married Jesus and that uh, I know that they've just discovered uh, Mary Gospel. Are you mm. aware? Yes, yes, I've read it. <laughs> I yeah. really oh, have you? You're you're good. <laughs> um, I, I don't really know any more about it than that, but I feel like, yeah, she was definitely maligned um, and unrightly so. So yeah, but yes, I can remember seeing, uh, arguing with people about that, and they were Catholics, and I wasn't, and I wasn't religious or going to church or anything. And yet, would you know steadfastly defend her? That is very interesting. And so, I guess a thread that is running through that I'm picking up in your experiences is this. Uh, I guess we can call it the divine feminine emerging. I mean, even in that really quite astounding lucid dream of the the spider mm -hmm. uh, weaving and birthing you. That's a it's a very feminine energy there. And creativity, you know, that creative force is also feminine in a way. To, to mm. yeah, that's it's very beautiful. So let's go back then to some more of your amazing stories. And if you would like to share the story about the past life in Canada, or if there are other uh, significant stories that you would like to share at this point, uh, I know that in within some of your most recent, more recent, not most recent, more recent experiences around all of the house-sitting adventures that you had in the years prior to COVID. There were lots of wonderful things that happened and we can go there, but um, I'm going to leave that to you to decide. <laughs> well, I'll talk a little bit about the Crowfoot um, past life experience, if you like. Sure. Um, 
I had, uh, I was told, God, how old was I? Maybe around 25, that I had a spirit guide whose name was Crowfoot and he was a Red Indian. And um, and so in subsequent years, every time there was something on about Red Indians on the feet, oh, I was told that it would be verified in the media. That was the key. And In the so, media, did you say? Was, in the media, yeah. Ah. And so every time there was a show on about Indians, I'm there, you know, watching to see if it would be verified and, you know, all the rest of it. Nothing ever came. Years and years and years passed and Chris passed away. And I used to do um, something each week where I would go into the little local library and I would go to the return section and put my hand up to the esoteric section and know that I would just pull the book from there and there would be a message in it somewhere along the line. And it might be on page three, it might be on page 103, whatever, but there would be a little message there for me. And that just became a little bit of a ritual with me. Anyway, um, this particular time I went and picked a book up from the library and it was called Truth Vibrations by David Icke. I hadn't read any of David's books before. I wasn't particularly thrilled with that book. I picked it up and tried to read it and couldn't get into it, put it under my bed. And in those days, you could borrow for six weeks and at the end of the six weeks, you'd get a letter from the library saying, you know, please return your overdue books. And that's exactly what happened. And so I hadn't picked that book up for that amount of time. And so I had to take it back the following day. So that morning I woke up and I thought, I'll see if I can find something in this book. And I put my hand down under the bed and I had Jake in bed next to me because once Chris had died, everybody was in my bed. So Laura was, I've got an older daughter and she was one side, Jake was in the middle and I was on the other side. Anyway, I had put my hand down underneath the bed, picked the book up and I believe that I turned to page 89 and read the last paragraph and then flicked the page over and David Icke was working at that time on moving things to the different chakras of the earth. He was trying to balance the energies of the chakras of Mother Earth. And he had gone to the grave of Crowfoot and ding, 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 mm. <laughs> in my head. And I think he'd taken a stone or something from the grave of Crowfoot. But I shut the book straight away because this is years and years later and that was the first time I had seen, I hadn't told anybody the Indian's name, but that was the first time I'd seen it in print. So there was the media aspect. And so um, I thought about it and I, I thought, what do I know? I don't really know anything. Right? I know he's an Indian, that's about it. But because then we had the internet, I was able to go onto the computer and look. And I was able to research Crowfoot of the Blackfoot Nation. He's Canadian. So I could find all these little pictures of him. He was quite famous within the Blackfoot Nation because he was uh, a peace a peacemaker. He wasn't aligned with the tribes that were fighting the white man. Uh, and I think he was maligned in that because he didn't, he wanted to save his family, his tribe, I guess. In the course of doing that, they all died anyway of smallpox, I believe. But I digress. So closed the book. I looked at all the photos, I printed all these little photos out and made like a little collage 
put them onto an A4 sheet and laminated them. And I had that sitting on my kitchen bench. And my mum and dad came to stay because they would come every three weeks and help me with things around the farm because it was, you know, a bit of a struggle after Chris had died. And this laminate was sitting on my kitchen bench and my mum walked past it and she looked at it and she said, oh, my God, that looks like you. Now, Crowfoot is not a good-looking man, but she, she made the comment, it looked like me across the eyes. And she didn't know that story, so then I was able to tell her and she had gone to library in Broadbeach, but she lives on the Gold Coast, and she had picked up Truth Vibrations by David Icke and read it at exactly the same time, and there was my other verification. Oh, wow. Mm. So she got nothing from the book. I didn't. I can't say I really got anything from the book either. I stopped it at whatever page, I think it was page 90, and closed it, and I didn't go back to it because I was in shock that there was this Indian's name. And so my attention then was about looking on the internet and seeing what I could find and going from there. But 14, 14 years ago, I sold the farm and I went to Canada with my mum and my dad. We had the opportunity to go through my brother who worked at Air Canada to visit Canada. So I took Jake and my mum and dad and we flew over to Vancouver Island and we stayed there for a little while and then we went to Calgary and from there Jake and I went out to the Blackfoot Reservation and we stayed in a teepee out on the plains and one of the young men who was like a guide if you like uh, of the reservation said to me the ancestors are returning and (laughs) I can't say anything because you know what right have I got to say that I believe I was his ancestor I, I couldn't do that But I thought, this is so bizarre that he would even say that to me. You know, it was just another, they're just little signals along the way. But yeah, Jake and I stayed out there for the night. We froze. Mm -hmm. We were in a teepee. It wasn't a great experience. And I I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to get an epiphany out here. I I think, you know, if I do these really weird things, I'm sure something big will happen. (laughs) The epiphany that came was in the morning we could hear dogs barking very, very close around us. I didn't know if it was wolves or what, and I was quite frightened. And the message that came through was that ever since my husband had died, I'd lived in fear. And that was so true, and that makes me very emotional Mm. now. But it was like my – the rug had been pulled out from Mm. and – yeah, and fear was exactly where I was coming from all the time. It was not not consciously, and I don't think other people would have seen that, but I was so fearful. And so that was my great epiphany, not such a great one, but you know, and you got to take it as it comes. Yes, and, and Linda, having that epiphany, having that understanding that you have lived from fear since that moment, how did that help you to... Or did it help you to begin to to heal that? Not consciously. I'm not conscious of that. I, I'm aware of the message. And I think that um, perhaps I learned to speak out a little bit more. Mm. I, I would talk to my girlfriends about stuff. And, and they all know all these weird and wonderful things that happened to me. But, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm becoming less fearful now, I think. And maybe that's what COVID was for me, finding my voice and not being not being so frightened 
not coming from a place of fear, but coming from a place of sovereignty, knowing that we are eternal, that the, the body can die, but not the soul inside. That that's I don't, I don't know. I, I haven't unpacked any of that. I'm just winging it with that one. Well, those uh, messages very much resonate with me and I'm sure that they resonate with so many of the audience that listens to these conversations, you know, that the soul is eternal and it it, absolutely. it goes on. And knowing that you still go on, not being afraid of death. I don't want to die. I'm afraid of the way you die because I do remember some things that have happened in the past. But knowing that it's just a transition, you really just go through another door. That's how I feel. And if anyone has ever held sacred space with somebody who's in their final moments, there is a real sense after the crossing has taken place that they're no longer inhabiting that the body. vessel. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's quite clear. Yeah. It's funny because when Chris died, I remember thinking at the funeral, how did how did that big person that I loved fit in that little box? It just didn't make any sense to me that mm. that had happened. He was too big to be in that small box. That was weird. That was really, really weird. So I think that I was seeing him on that uh, etheric basis, the, the big aura of him or the big, the big piece of light that he was, not the body. That's beautiful. Mm, the light that we are. The light yeah. that we are. Let's go now to some of your more recent adventures. And as I yeah referenced, I do love the um, the very colourful and just fascinating stories that you have throughout your life. And even like when we first spoke and you shared about your house-sitting adventures, to me in, in those years prior to COVID, to me that just, just listening gave me a real sense of liberation and just to know that you were – you know, perhaps in Paris one day, in Scotland the next. <laughs> it was just, it's just lovely to hear. So even just on that level, it's very interesting. But okay. in 2016, you were at uh, Findhorn and you met a friend and you had some really quite lovely experiences. Well, that's the friend that you met was a Spanish woman and she invited you to walk that segment of the Camino. Yeah, I don't know what year it was. I, I think it might have been earlier than 2016. So I, I met her and then we walked the Camino in 2017, I think. But I met her prior to that, probably five, oh, I don't know. I don't know how many years. I'd have to sit down and think about it. But I went to Findhorn and Josephina just happened to be there as well. We ended up being in the same cottage. So we went to the Isle of Erid, which was a community attached to Findhorn but on the other coastline. And it's just across from Iona, which is the place where they buried the king, so a very uh, sacred island off the coast of Scotland. And Josephina and I happened to be in one of the cottages. There was only six, and so we shared our experience there. I think there were 12 people on the island at the time, and so you become part of the community, and it's called Love in Action. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. So we would take it in turns. Somebody would have to do breakfast. So if it was my turn to do the breakfast, I might have to go down to the orchard and pick some apples and stew some apples up. And we would have a communal uh, breakfast. I'd have to ring the bell that breakfast was ready and people would come and we'd all sit around the long tables in the, in the dining room. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful. 
place. And they had a meditation room up on the hill. And the island is was the home of the Stevenson family, and that's Robert Louis Stevenson fame. He was the odd one out. This is how I understand the story. He was the odd one out, the black sheep of the family, because they were all engineers. And he was an author and wanted to write books. And he wrote the book Kidnapped based on a little cove on the Isle of Erid. It was all written there as far as I believe. But he maybe grew up there and explored the island. And it very much features in, in the book Kidnapped. But I, while I was there, I had an experience sitting down on the, the uh, shoreline that um, I'd had a previous memory of being a firefly, and that was a life as a firefly. And that I'd told people about that. And when I was on the island, I got the message from Spirit that it was time to stop being the firefly and to be the lighthouse. And I remember messaging a girlfriend here on the Sunshine Coast and telling her that message and saying, that's too bloody big for me. <laughs> I can't do that. Mm-hmm. It seemed huge to jump from being a firefly, which was that little little spark that just shines intermittently, to being a lighthouse that shines a, a big light, if you like. Mm-hmm. But then I found out after that 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 island, the the Stevenson family were actually the people that mined the rock on the island to build the lighthouses around the coast of Scotland. So again, a wow. verification. A verification. Wow. Yeah. What a story. And that was a yeah, big verification. So yes, uh, so Josephina and I were friends there. We became friends there and from there we went to I was going over to Fintorn and then Josephina decided she'd go to the main area of Fintorn as well. We went over there for a week. And we had to also participate in the work there. So I was in the kitchen and Josephina was working out in the fields and we did our week there and went to Edinburgh and then she went back to Spain and I went on with my travels wherever I was going from there. I don't remember really, to be honest. Later on, when I uh, contacted Josephina and said I was going to walk the Camino, she said that she would come and walk it with me. So I met her in Mallorca, where her family was based. And uh, then we travelled to Santander and walked the Camino together. Very cool, very cool. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I just love that story about being on the island there and having that realisation about, you know, it's time to be a lighthouse, it's time to shine. Perhaps we could speculate that, you know, you've been working towards that in a subconscious way maybe since that moment and learning well, learning to shine brighter. I've probably fought that for a long, long time because standing out is, is hard work, you yes. know. It's, it's that little step like we talked about earlier, you know, it's that little tiny step. You think it in your head that it's this huge leap and in reality it is a tiny step. But it's a massive transition of self to be seen in that way. Yeah. You know, like I said to you about my daughter saying about me singing to the river uh, and there was a little video of me in the Marucci River and she, she was embarrassed I guess. Tell us about the river and singing to the river and how that happened and um, and about the practice itself. Uh, I saw a little video on YouTube um, that was uh, some Indian grandmothers 
Red Indian grandmothers that were uh, singing to the waters and they have a particular little song and you can find that on YouTube. It's called, um, what is it called? The Grandmother's Song to the Water, I think. Mm, I've got uh, it. I'll share the link in the show notes so that anybody who wants to can go and have a look. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful practice. So I started doing that to the Maruchi River, so I go down each day. I, I walk along the river each day and then I go into the river. I splash in the river so that the river knows I'm there and I sing this particular verse and you sing it to the north to bring in the ancestors and then you change to the east and the south and the west and sing the verse. And I did it the other day with a friend, a Mexican friend, and she told me that by right she should do that 13 circuits which means that you're chanting it 52 times. So we did it together in the river, which was beautiful. I can't remember the significance of what that was now, but there is some significance as, as doing it 13. And that's an interesting cross-cultural thing as well. It's a universal thing, this, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that is something to do with the Mayan calendar. She did tell me, but I've forgotten. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. So yeah, I've started so doing it too. I discovered I the know. little video after you told me and shared yep. about it and I went along and and it feels really nice to do. And I remember when we talked and you told me, introduced me to the idea and shared what you've been doing with your yep. song to the river. You told me that you have a sense that it's loving the river, what you're doing, and that the, the waters are receptive to your song. And Absolutely. Yeah, and I felt that in the only couple of times that I've done it, I've really, it's almost like then I look at the water and it seems to be rippling in a way that mm. is sparkling like gemstones on the surface and it feels like they're saying, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> or I love you back. Gorgeous. Like it's really beautiful. Yeah, and I, I think... For me, the realisation was I, like when I've been walking along and I go in to the river and I speak to the river and I splash and stuff like that, before I was doing the song, as I was walking along the river, because I do this walk every morning, I would pick up a particular leaf that had just caught my attention or a feather or something like that. So when I stepped into the river, I would offer it and just say thank you to the river and just be conscious that it's a living thing, mm. it's consciousness. And so on, I think it was the 2nd second, second of August, as I walked along the river for the first time ever, and I've lived on the Sunshine Coast for 30 years, I saw a black swan. Now, there is a legend about the black swan, and that is Maruchi. The name Maruchi means black swan. Ulam is the warrior that fought Nindari uh, to try and win Maruchi. So there's a whole legend attached to it. But the upshot is that the two warriors both died and Maruchi also died out of grief. But she was in love with Kulam. And anyway, so the black swan is associated with the Maruchi River. In 30 years, I have never, ever seen a black swan on the Maruchi River. And on the 2nd of August, I was walking along and a black swan swam up and came to where I was and followed me along the riverbank and I took photos and I was in absolute awe that this black swan was there. And then oh, maybe two or three weeks later, I had like a, a vision or a, a thing during the night where I was told to remember that I'd seen the black swan on the river. 
And when I got up that morning and went to walk, and I walk usually at 5.30 in the morning, I crossed the road over to the river and straight away in the pre-dawn, if you like, I saw five swans. There seemed to be three adults and two cygnets, but they were big. They wow. weren't little cygnets. What a sight. It was, and I was just so filled with joy because that to me then meant that the river was repairing there is, you know, the the black swan is coming back. It means that it's regenerating because we've stuffed around with these rivers and and made walls and stuff like that. And every, and because they put the road along, they've taken the mangroves out and stuff like that. Well, mm. I can see the mangroves are starting to come back. But to see the swan and to get that message to take note of the fact that I'd remembered to seeing the swan, there was a message in that. And that was like a little bit of a lucid thing in the middle of the night as well. So for me, it is a sign that the river is repairing and the river is feeling the love. And I've also seen a little bit of weed growth along the river, just just um, on the rocks, not very much. And it's very murky down there still, but there is some green coming back. And again, that for me, that's a sign that the, River is feeling the love because it's regenerating. And I'm taking that. I don't care whether I'm right, wrong or indifferent. I'm holding on to that, that the work that I'm doing, and it's not an ego thing, it's just a love thing, that love will work if we just, it's such a simple, simple thing. Mm. You have to do simple things. You have to say that word love. You have to mean it from your heart and the plants will respond, the animals will respond, everything, everything responds to that. And I think that whatever I'm doing is right. It might be small, but it's still counting. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that story, which really quite neatly in a way takes us back to the beginning and ties it up with a bow. You were told that the veil has lifted, has started Mm. to lift, that the animals are coming through. And it also reminds me of something else that you shared and our entire episode today really speaks to this. And you said to me uh, that you look at the world with wonder and awe. I do. And I I just, I really resonate with that. For me, those two words are very powerful and it's a, it's quite a perspective, isn't it? When you look at the world with those eyes, it changes everything. Everything is beautiful. Absolutely. It's calling to you. It's feeding you. Everything has been created for us. And if we can just recognize that, look at that and say thank you, it really is that simple. Look at it with different eyes. Look at it with eyes that are open and and full of wonder and see that leaf and see the the beauty of how that's been created. And I don't know, I'm just... I love this world. I think it is such a beautiful place. And if everybody can get on the same page and just see the, just look at it differently. Just look at it with eyes that are not half closed. It will respond. It will respond and it's responsive. Yeah, exactly. It's a conversation that we're having Mm. with the world Mm. and with life. Yeah. Well, I think that's an absolutely beautiful point to um, end our conversation today. And it's been just such a, such a joy to chat. After listening to this, there are people that uh, listen to the show that might want to get in touch with you. Are you open to that, Linda? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I don't have a website or anything, um, 
But I do have an Instagram page, uh, which is at Record Decor, which is R-E-C-O-R-D-E-C-O-R. Perfect. And I'll link to that as well in the yeah, show notes. That's my records. And if you send me a message on that page, I will respond. Fantastic. And do you have any closing thoughts to leave the audience with today? Just open your eyes and smile and and see the beauty and, and not be affected by the negativity that's out there. Try and transpose that. And I think this, that spirit told me recently that it isn't hard. All we have to do is go and sit, raise your vibration, and that will ripple out like throwing a stone in a pond. Every raising of our vibration will ripple out to other people and consequently the vibration of the world will shift also. And in terms of raising your vibration, is that in order to do that, would a simple way be, for instance, doing something that brings you a great amount of joy? I, I think just sitting and just being quiet, listening to the stillness, listening listening to the beauty of the birds singing and, and uh, listening to the rocks and the trees and it, the silence that they hold mm. is the silence that we need. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for coming on the show today. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Have an experience you'd like to share with me? Get in touch at my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story.